You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Laura Davis is the author of seven nonfiction books, including The Courage to Heal, Becoming the Parent You Want to Be, and I Thought We'd Never Speak Again. Her new book is The Burning Light of Two Stars, A Mother-Daughter Story. Laura, would you read to me from the book? Sure. I grew up certain that I was crazy, that mom was right and I was wrong. Underneath the idyllic exterior, a broad wash of confusion covered the canvas of my life. I had no language for it, I knew nothing of boundaries or autonomy. All I knew was that I felt like mom owned me and that I had to get away. Something new was taking root inside me, the start of who I was meant to be, and I could no longer afford to grant her rummage rights to the tender, unformed parts of me. My mother was too formidable to confront directly. That would come later. So as a young girl, I adopted a different strategy. I chose the bluntest instrument at my disposal, the only one I had access to at the time. I went silent. I answered in monosyllables. I never let her near near me. Lots of teenagers do that. I know, Karen and I have raised three of them. But what I did with my mother was more than normal adolescent withdrawal more than a 13-year-old rolling her eyes at her mother's stupidity. My need to shut my mother out wasn't developmental. It was primal. I had to pry myself away from her to become me. And so I hardened. I no longer saw the mother who sang me lullabies, let me cheat at Scrabble, curled up next to me on the old brown couch watching The Six Wives of Henry VIII on Masterpiece Theater, I no longer saw the woman who stood outside my isolate and pulled me into the world with her fierce love, protecting the daughter who survived. I saw a poisonous spider wrapping me in her web. Thank you. It's such a beautiful book, and I think you've done something very difficult to do, which is tell the raw truth, to show raw emotions, to show difficult times and unhappy situations with a clarity that really makes it easy to read, but also to slice up your timeline in a way that makes the storytelling very compelling to read, to find out what's going to happen, even though we know what's going to happen. I'd like you to ratchet back here because... In my introduction, I talked about your first book, The Courage to Heal. That was written 33 years ago. You became, you know, the leader of a movement. You you were famous. You toured the country. I'd like you to talk about that ascent of fame and how that telescoped out for you to the point where you began to write this book. So I wrote The Courage to Heal with Ellen Bass, who many local people will know, of course, uh, as an author and poet and teacher. And when the two of us wrote it, um, we had no idea that it would ever 
have the kind of impact it had. In fact, we had a publishing contract with Harper and Rowe, that's what they were called at the time, but I was really convinced they would never publish the book because I was just so convinced that it was too radical. You know, it was confronting perpetrators of sexual abuse in a way that hadn't happened before. Uh, There were all these lesbians in the book, and uh, it it was a very um, groundbreaking book at the time and controversial. And so I, I thought when they saw that, when our editor saw the manuscript, she would just say, you know, we're really sorry, but we just can't publish this. But that didn't happen. Um, and then the book became this grassroots underground bestseller, just like spread woman to woman, therapist to therapist. And it just kept growing and growing. And I, I suddenly found myself, I mean, famous in this little niche um, for the worst thing that had ever happened to me. And I, I was only 31 years old. And I wasn't really, I wasn't prepared for the impact of suddenly being in the limelight for this really terrible thing. And everywhere I went, um, women would come and start telling me their incest story or their abuse story. I mean, I would go, I would go to the Nickelodeon to go to the movies, and I would be in the stall, and someone would be on the outside of the stall telling me their story. So it's like I couldn't get away from it. And on one hand, it was incredibly gratifying to have been part of creating something that had such a powerful impact on women's lives and helped millions of women around the world to heal and to feel empowered. But I was at that point um, young. I didn't have the, the skills or the grounding to really deal with the attention that I was getting. And also I was still very much in the throes of healing from my own sexual abuse, which had been with my grandfather. So I was at the beginning of my own healing process. So it, it was a pretty intense time for me. Um, and I, I did that, I, that kind of being on the road on the lecture circuit. And I wrote three other books um, about healing from sexual abuse. Um, and then I got to the point where, you know, I didn't really want to be identified with this trauma from my past. I, you know, I had done enough healing work that I wanted to move on. And I wanted to find out you know, who am I meant to be if this had never happened to me at all? And so I quit being on the road. I just walked away and I was sort of at the peak of my, you could call success, um, as this person going around talking about sexual abuse. Um, and I, um, I was living actually in San Francisco at the time and I moved back to Santa Cruz where I had lived before. And what I really wanted was to have a family. And, and very soon after I moved back here, um, I met my spouse, Karen, who I've been with ever since. Um, she had an 11-year-old son. And I remember on our first date, I asked her, well, are you open to having more children? <laughs> because I was I was almost 35 years old, and it was like my tick, my clock was really ticking. And she said, well, yeah, I've always kind of wanted to have a little brother or sister for Brian. And that was the beginning of our relationship. And uh, we then had two more children and now have three grandchildren and, you know, um, a long life together. Um, and, and so I wrote other books about other topics, and, and they tended to follow my interests. You know, um, I got together with Janice Kaiser, who many local people will know as an incredible parenting expert, and we wrote Becoming the Parent You Want to Be. Um, and then at a certain point, um, I guess I have to go back. I, I had been, uh, because of the publication of The Courage to Heal, in part, I 
became deeply estranged from my mother who lived on the East Coast. And it was her father who had sexually abused me. And I said it happened. She insisted I was lying and I was dragging the family through the mud for no reason and that I had been brainwashed. And uh, it was the opposite of what I needed, which was her love and support. And so we ended up really at war. And I wanted her to acknowledge what had happened and support me. And she wanted me to recant. And we were kind of in this rigid, in our corners for years, um, really having a, a very difficult and estranged relationship. And um, when I got pregnant um, with my son, Eli, who's now 28 years old, um, I think f for both of us, that was really a motivation to try to see if there was some way to salvage our relationship. And that sort of, that was the beginning of the path that led to this book, which is about my relationship with my mother and about the long process of both estrangement and reconciliation and how when she was uh, almost 80 years old, she called me from New Jersey and announced that she was moving to Santa Cruz for the rest of her life, basically for me to take care of her. <laughs> and I was... We had, we had gotten to a point of um, some degree of reconciliation, but I never would have called our relationship intimate. And I think we were able to have a relationship because we lived 3,000 miles apart. And, you know, she would visit, but I was always happy when she went back to New Jersey and there was this buffer. And when she announced that she was coming here, it was like that buffer was going to be gone. And so the, the question that I explore in The Burning Light of Two Stars is, can you caretake a parent who has betrayed you in the past? I, I think one of the things that interested me about I, the book, as I say, was impeccably well-written in terms of your pacing and the way you told the story. And at the end of the book, you mentioned that you, you had written some of the stories from this book before and in many ways in letters and just telling stories sitting down with people. I'd like you to talk about the import of the process of creating, taking memory and turning it into narrative many times because we, that's in a sense the way, in coming out with different versions of the same story many times, that's what we do with memory. We reach back in there and pull something out. And when it's coming out, it's affected by everything that's happened since and everything that's happening now, and everything you want, and everything you don't want. And so it doesn't, it's not like a, a video where you just pull out off the hard drive and look at it and go, oh, there it is again. It's not. I'm, I'm so glad you um, asked that question. I could easily spend our whole hour <laughs> just on this topic because it's, it's quite fascinating to me. There's a, um, an epigraph in the book by this uh, woman, Deborah Fruche, who's a, mm -hmm. a writer, and she said, Every time I look in the rearview mirror, the past has changed. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's right in the front of my book because that's my experience is that, um, you know, the, the way I perceived my mother over, well, 57 years was she died when I was 57. Um, but the way I perceived her my whole life just was a constant state of evolution. And um, my perspective on her changed um, so much. Um, and, and quite dramatically, really. Um, and, you know, some of it was moving from the uh, 
frame of just this mother and this daughter locked in conflict and starting to look at her life and her history and her generation. And uh, we're from a Jewish family and the kind of trauma that's been passed down through the generations that influences everything. Um, and, and, and just seeing the broader picture of who she was besides my mother. You know, she was beloved by many, many people. Um, and, you know, in terms of memory, there's, there's, one, <laughs> there's one story in this book that I tell it's about, I think I'm trying to remember, it's, you know, I'm trying to remember. It's about, um, there was a point where I did invite my mother to come to California, like 10 years before she called and announced she was coming. And it was sort of this offhand, unexpected invitation, not pre-planned. And it was really kind of one of the pivotal scenes I knew I had to write in this book. And when I wrote it, um, I, I wrote that it happened here in California, in Santa Cruz, in my living room, and that my mother and I were alone, and that it was after I had interviewed her, and she had really spilled some secrets. And I think I felt so opened up by what she had spilled, this invitation just spontaneously came out of her. And I just said, you know, I think you should move out here when you're old. You know, we both were like shocked and couldn't even look at each other. I mean, it was just such a, so unexpected considering our history. And then, you know, forgot about it for 10 years until she announced she was taking me up on my offer. Uh, but my brother was one of the readers of this book early on, and he read it and he said, he said, no, I was there when you invited mom, and it was in New Jersey, and it was after her 70th birthday party when we flew with the grandkids to see her. And he was completely convinced. And then after I wrote the version I wrote for this book, I went back and I read my other book, I thought we'd never speak again, and I tell the same story, and it happens in New Jersey. So, you know, that's just like one example of many. And, I, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about so much is that everything you're saying is true about how we remember things differently. And when you write a memoir, it's not really that you embellish. It's more that you highlight certain things and you minimize other things. And, you know, in a scene, you drop out the unimportant things and you focus on the dr dramatic moments. And now, when I think about the incidents I write about in the book, I remember the scene I wrote. And it's kind of supplanted any original memories I had. And so that's actually a loss because it's, I you know, wrote these drafts over and over and over again, and it, it's, it's how I think about it now. Well, you know, that gets to the heart. Uh, I, some three or four years ago, I changed the name of my column and my website uh, because my previous idea was just based on adolescent idiocy. And, <laughs> and, and I came to realize that after talking to so many people, that humans are a storytelling species. We define ourselves by our stories. And what you've given is an absolutely concrete example of that happening to you. And so I think that this narrative is such a well-crafted story. I mean, you could just publish it under a pseudonym, change the names, and sell it as a novel, and I think it would sell equally well. So uh, I think that the storytelling in this is so powerful. Um, you know, one of the things that, that inter interested me is, I, because I've seen it a lot happen, is uh, what's called imposter syndrome. And I think that that idea of 
being something you're not or not being something you're supposed to be is really much more prevalent than advertised. And I think this book has many examples of it. And in a sense, you yourself are an example of imposter syndrome because you had all this trauma, yet you had, you, your brain told you be a normal girl, grow up normal. And, and, and none of this is all we've, I've stored all these horrible things that happened to you in different parts of your body and, and you may or may not remember them but you have to do this so i'd like you to just talk about the idea of the story you've lived versus the story that you're told you want to be that you think you should be following well there's you know the, the way i want to respond to that has to do with um, one of the elements in the book, which many people suggested I get rid of, which is there's these letters. I love the letters. I'm <laughs> glad you did not get and rid of it. Actually, the second, I, the first, I tried to write this as a play because mm -hmm. my mother was an actor, and I and I showed it to Wilma Marcus, who's a director in Santa Cruz, and she just said, "Laura, this is not a play. This has no bears no resemblance to a play." So I had to scrap that, and then I tried to write it as an epistolary book, just letters, mm -hmm. because when my mother died. I found this giant file folder full of letters, and it was all the letters she had ever received from me, and it was all the letters she had ever written to me that she had copied, and it was even all the first drafts of letters she had never sent. Wow. And I had, I had the same thing on my side. Oh, my God. So I, I put these things together, and it ended up being probably a foot thick. And, you know, this was pre-internet, pre-email, and... My mother and I were amazing letter writers, mm -hmm. and I, I collect, col uh, collated these letters, and then I just didn't want to read them, and I just put it off and put it off and put it off. I dreaded it, and then I, I forced myself to sit down and read them, and what was the most challenging for me in reading these letters is that I had had this kind of what I call my habitual story about my mother, and it was basically, you know, I was the wronged party, she was the villain, um, you know, and we didn't speak for seven years. And when I started reading these letters, I realized that whole seven-year period, we had continued to write letters. Right, I remember so, reading it. It was really fascinating. So I had to confront my own uh, incomplete storyline. I'm not going to say false, because there was some truth to it. We were estranged during that time. But that there was always this thread of connection and this... I, I, sometimes I talk about us as these two souls who couldn't quit each other. Like, for both of us, we had every reason to never speak again, and that there was some driving force that made us keep trying to rebuild or heal this relationship. It was like karmic or something. Um, so, so when I read those letters, I had to, I had to realize that it was not true that so many of the things and that there were as I read them you know and I I I had always remembered the terrible letter she sent she sent some doozies you know that were just like attacking and bitter and hostile and you couldn't have hurt me worse if you'd shot me and you know really kind of intense things but then there were these letters that were loving and generous and giving me like wonderful motherly advice and I had forgotten those so so I had to face the fact I had to confront that my memory really loved to hold on to the bad and loved to forget the good. 
And so part of the reason that took me 10 years to write this book is that I had to get to the point where I could see us both as human, um, flawed, loving, lovable, difficult, challenging, imperfect human beings. And I knew the book was finally finished. I I sent it out to a lot of um, beta readers, like tester readers, all the way along the way. And the, the last group, I started getting feedback like, you know, on this page, I loved you and hated your mother. And on this page, I hated you and loved your mother. And that's when I knew the book was finished. That makes perfect sense. You know, one of the things this book is really a lot about is the parent-adult-child relationship. You talked about writing a book about parenting, and so the idea of parenting is really ineffably fixed. It's completely fixed to this idea of the mature adult and the immature, very young child up to, say, 12 or, no, let's, 18, say, these days, or maybe up to 30 these days. But the idea is there's a, a parent and, and an mature and immature. Yet, to me, the uh, relationships that are really fascinating are between the two mature, supposedly mature adults. <laughs> Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, I think that maturity is, is it's a Schrodinger's cat kind of thing. I, I myself I see myself as simultaneously 18 years old and a completely adolescent idiot and 85 years old, a grumpy man. And at any moment, you'll find me either at those points or somewhere in between, but it's never one. I think that maturity is a lot less common. <laughs> we would prefer to think. So talk, talk about creating that relationship between two adults who are, you know, paying the rent and, and paying the bills and, and living their lives. Well, you know, it's so interesting because I now have a, a son who's in his 40s. And exactly. I have, you I have, write about that in the book. And I, I have two kids in their 20s. And I feel like as a parent, the most important thing I have to learn over and over is to keep my mouth shut. Mm. 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 Oh, mm. really? Mm. That's very interesting. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> and to just like that, that advice giving, that like managing, that Mike, you know, you just, I just having to move out of that. So it's interesting being in the, the position of the, the parent of adult children now. Um, with my mother, it was challenging for many, many years. I mean, when we began to reconcile, it was not, it took many years of like, you know, we could be triggered so easily by each other. You know, just one comment, you know, like I would be, I had my daughter Lizzie, uh, you know, and I would nurse her in public when she was a baby. And my mother would just be mortified that I was doing that, you know, and or she, she was horrified that we didn't have a TV in our house, you know, and I was horrified that she was a closet smoker and, um, you know, so many other things. I didn't like the way she chewed her food, you know. And so there were um, so many ways that we could just trigger each other. And what what helped us was ultimately getting to this point where we agreed to disagree. There was this huge issue between us, which was this history of sexual abuse. And I said it happened. She said it didn't happen. And for years, we were trying to convince the other person, you know, I'm right and you're wrong and vice versa. And 
you know, in some ways I really credit my mother for this, that she said, you know, we have to start creating some new experiences together or all we're going to have is the last 20 years of a terrible past. And um, so we, we agreed to not talk about it anymore because there was really no point. And I had gotten to the point in my own healing process where I had moved forward enough that I didn't need her validation anymore. You know, I mean, I had told everyone, I had told the whole world in book after book. I mean, I didn't need anything from her. And I began to accept the fact that she wasn't capable of giving me what I wanted, that I had, I, it's ironic because I had a certain kind of strength and courage to face these things that she did not have. And I feel like I got that strength and courage from her. So it's kind of like, you know, but I'm a different generation. I was, there were more resources available to me. And I began to have more compassion for the fact that she just could not cross that line. So we agreed to disagree and she stopped trying to get me to recant. And we started to rebuild a relationship based on things that we actually enjoyed together. Like we both loved going to the theater. Um, we both loved the movies. Um, we would cook together. And the thing she did that I think made the hugest difference in our period of reconciliation is that she was a, a snowbird. She had retired, she was a school social worker, um, and she retired from the child study team where she taught, she was in New Jersey. And for many years, she would go down to San Miguel de Ende as a snowbird. She wanted to get away from the bitter winters in New Jersey. And she would go to Mexico. And uh, when Eli, um, her grandson was, maybe a year and a half or something. She called one day and, and again, she announced, she didn't ask, this is the way she was. She announced, she said, I've decided I'm coming to Santa Cruz this winter instead of Mexico. And she said, you don't have to worry about me. I'll get my own apartment and you know me, I'll be so busy, you know? And I was really reluctant, you know? I didn't say no, but I dragged my heels. I didn't help her find a place to live. I didn't help her move. I was, ambivalent is too kind of a word of how I felt. But I think underneath my resistance, there was always this curiosity and maybe this longing of, could I actually feel close to my mother? Like, is it possible for us to repair this relationship enough that we could develop some ease? And so she, she started coming and I think it was like nine years, she came every winter for two or three months. And it really made a huge difference um, because we were able to, she would come to the kids you know, recitals and school plays, and they really enjoyed her. She was a great storyteller. She would come tell them stories. Um, and it, it really made a big difference. And I felt like that took a huge amount of courage on her part. And she was really busy. I mean, she got involved in a million activities in Santa Cruz, and she was in plays, and she was in the meditation group, and she was in lifelong learners, and, you know, all these different groups. Um, and and she, but you know, still things would come up and we would have to go into our corners. And I remember there was this, this one day when after probably nine years, we had a big fight. I don't remember what the fight was about. And I went over to her place the next day to apologize, you know, and to just kind of smooth things over. And, and what I realized was that reconciliation didn't meant that we wouldn't fight. It meant that we could fight. And that I, I realized that one fight was not going to make or break our relationship, that we had crossed some kind of critical mass where I knew we were in each other's lives forever. And that was, I remember that was such a significant moment. And I told her about it, and she just started crying. And she said, 
you know, it's only recently that I've began to stop being afraid that you would keep my grandchildren from me. Wow. You know, one of the things that interested me in this book was maybe 40 years ago, things were pretty black and white. You know, you were, you know, man or woman, and or, you know, you were absolutely mentally fine or, you know, you were ready for electroshock therapy. And we've realized since that everything is on a spectrum and, and there's shades and degrees of everything. And, and we've come to acknowledge that. I'd like you to talk about, and that, that has changed mostly our culture because we no longer find it easy to exclude because everything's on a spectrum. So where do you draw those lines? People, I mean, you just say, well, there's this place and that's where these things happen. I'd like to talk about the impact of culture on the perceptions of you. I mean, because of where you've been, um, abuse, when you were abused, wasn't, wasn't, rarely mentioned, if at all. Um, being a lesbian was probably <laughs> rarely mentioned as well. So talk about how the cultural change of from black and white to spectrums has changed your life and, and how that played into the creation of that book and what happens to you in this book. Oh, wow, what a question. Um, the thing that comes to mind first is about being a lesbian because, you know, when I came out, it was not, uh, there, you know, there was a, there was a thriving gay and lesbian culture. Right. Um, so it wasn't hard. And I actually moved to Santa Cruz to come out <laughs> when I was 23 years old. I was living up in Northern California and I, I knew I was a lesbian, but I was like living with all straight people. And, and I, uh, had a cousin who lived in Boulder Creek and um, and then someone just said, well, Santa Cruz is a great place. There's so many lesbians. That's actually how I got got here, you know, um, more than 40 years ago. So uh, so and and for my mother, you know, she was horrified. Her first reaction when I came out to her was, you've confirmed my worst fear about you. She was such a drama queen. Oh, my God. And, you know, it was well, another... she was an actress. She was an actress. There you it go. was such a, you know, I just remember it was this very dramatic scene. But, you know, it actually, I think because of the culture, it didn't take long. I would say maybe three or four years before she was on board. I mean, that she was supportive. She would call and ask me about my girlfriend at the time. And she um, no longer felt it was something shameful that she had to hide. And, you know, by the time she was an old woman and, and she had dementia at the end of her life, which is something I hope we'll get to, mm -hmm. to talk about because that's a big part of this book. Um, she, would, she would talk about Karen, my spouse, and she would just happily say, this is my daughter-in-law. You know, and then she'd say, you two have done such a good job with those kids. Who says lesbians shouldn't have children? That was like one of her, when people have dementia, they have these loops where they say the mm. same thing. And that was, she must have repeated that every day for years. Who says lesbians shouldn't have children? You've done such a good job with those kids. And like from that to where she started, you know, that imagining that I was going to be this lonely lesbian in a bar, you know, uh, that's 
that was her image, you know, and that she would never have grandchildren. That was the first thing she said. I'll never have grandchildren, you know. So, um, so that that's one way in which it was just a huge difference. And I think that the way the culture changed mm -hmm. really was to my advantage and to her advantage. You know, I think that, as you mentioned, a large part of this book is concerned with Alzheimer's. And for many people, myself included, that's a, one of the most terrifying things that we could possibly face. Because what it means is an end to understanding your own story. And that's beautifully said. That's really beautiful, Rick. And when when that happens, I mean, you're lost. You're you're lost in this world, and your reaction to being lost is, you know, anger, fear, terror, anxiety, anxiety. I'd like you to talk about this because the the you do a beautiful job of portraying this. This book has a countdown. And I think that that countdown is so heartbreaking to read, and you, and you have lots of chapters, so there you, it's a constant reminder as a reader that we're counting down towards something. Talk about that countdown, and finding that point where your mother moved up, and where how that played out for you. There was a you know. What happened really when she moved out here and she started, she had already been um, showing some signs of dementia, um, but she was still living independently and functioning pretty well. I noticed a difference. My mm -hmm. brother said he didn't. You know, Karen said I was exaggerating, you know, but I felt, I sensed the change. Um, and I think what, what happened was as she began to, she first she moved here and she had just this great heyday of, she was like Miss Senior Popularity. You know, she she would hold up this handicapped placard she had, and she said, I'm so popular, and it's all because of this. <laughs> she was such a character. Um, you know, and she, but then there was a period when she um, started forgetting her calendar, and she would have a date to do things because she was always very busy, and people would come to pick her up, and she wouldn't be ready because she would have forgotten. And her friends started to pull away from her, and she really stopped being able to function. She became quite isolated. Um, and as you said, she became um, anxious. Uh, she became, she would lash out. She was rageful. Um, she was teary. She was, her emotions were all over the place. And the thing that was the most challenging for me, I mean, there were a lot of things that were really hard. I mean, I had two teenagers at home. I had a business and, you know, it was like, I was totally in the sandwich generation being squeezed. But what was hard for me is that the emotions that came out when her dementia began mirrored for me, the really challenging emotions from the past. And so I was triggered all over again. And it, it brought up all the really difficult feelings that I thought we had resolved like 20 years earlier. And suddenly it was like a second war and the war was over her independence. I was convinced she shouldn't live alone. She insisted she could live alone. And um, there were a few years that were just very, very difficult. And I, you know, I, I'm sure that's true for anyone listening who's had a parent or a partner with dementia or Alzheimer's, that there's, there's this, this period where the other people around that person know what's going on and the person doesn't know it themselves. And um, it was 
very, very difficult. And then, you know, there was even a more kind of heartbreaking period later where she um, she no longer wanted to be independent. Like she, all the fire went out of her and she became, it was like I had a different mother. And that was, you know, that was, and I became very attached to her at that point. You know, I, I, I was bonded. I, I, I sometimes describe it as like a, there was a second umbilical cord between us when she was declining. And some of it was that I had the power now. I had the control. And the qualities that had made it so difficult for me to ever be close to her had diminished because she was impacted by the disease. So it was just such an interesting, poignant journey um, to care for her for those last years of her life. You know, when you were talking just now about the way your experience with your mother, I was thinking too about the way that the abuse affected you in that the trauma, and this book too, a big part of this book is, is about trauma. And the way that, that really deep troubling trauma happens is you don't even really necessarily experience it consciously. Is it, it your, if your brain is at the point where it's saying, oh no, what's happening to me is so awful. If I remember it clearly, it will destroy me. I will take all that information and store it in some other part of my body, not myself. And, and so trauma gets laced through our, our bodies. And this made me think of a fellow I interviewed at Bookshop many years ago, Bessel van der Kolk. Oh, yeah. I, I, was, I figured that you might know him as being you know, one of the experts of trauma. So I'd like you to talk about recovering from trauma, recovering your relationship with your mother that that caused from trauma, recovering that, and then finding yourself at the same time experiencing new trauma as you see your mother decline. I think, you know, I... You're well-versed in trauma at this point. Yeah, yeah I, I think that one of the things I wanted to portray is what does healing from trauma look like over many decades? You know, like my earlier books talked about kind of the, the white-hot period when it's a complete obsession and it's your whole life. And, you know, if you had asked me at 27 who I was... I would have said, you know, incest survivor would have been at the top of the list. And if you were to ask me that today, it wouldn't even be on the list. You know, I would say, you know, I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother, I'm an author, I'm a writing teacher, I'm a workshop leader, I'm a sister, I'm a cousin, I'm a friend, you know, I'm a hiker, I'm a swimmer. I would, I would say a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I would never think to say incest survivor mm -hmm. because it's, it's like, um, it's in the fabric of the cloth that shaped me, but I don't. And I think it, it has given me both strengths mm -hmm. and certain vulnerabilities. And I think those vulnerabilities showed when I was under stress in my mother's decline. Like mm. there were things that got triggered from the past that I thought had been resolved. And um, but I, you know, I, I think that as we as we go through that that healing spiral over the course of our life, it's just not the same as it is in the beginning. It's not, it's not an emergency. It's, you know, like 
if something was to come up now for me that has some derivation in that part of my life, I would have the tools to deal with it. I would have the resources. I would know what to do. I would recognize what was happening. I would know how to be kind to myself. And it probably wouldn't last very long. So, you know, I think our relationship to carrying trauma changes. I, I don't believe, you know, after all these years of thinking about it, I don't think we ever heal absolutely. Like we completely get over something. It, it just, you know, we're shaped, especially something that happens in childhood. It, it's part of our, the web of who we are. Um, but I don't, I don't think of it as a um, detriment. I don't, I don't really relate to it. I mean, if I wasn't talking about this book, it, it just would never be in my conversation um, anymore. And I, I think I want people to know, especially those who are at the beginning of really struggling with trauma and healing from trauma, that it is not going to be like the way it feels now to you in the future. And I want to be an example of that, that, you know, you could go on and live a, you know, I've had a, a long-term relationship. I've raised children who are happy and well-adjusted. I've had a successful career. I'm a pretty happy person, and I, I don't feel like I'm carrying a bag load of trauma with me. You know, it's not that, as I said, it can't be triggered sometime. Uh, but there are also strengths I developed that are, are very solid in me. Now, one of the things you mentioned I thought that was very interesting about caring for uh, somebody who's entering dementia is that at one point... Um, your the people told you to tell what you call fiblets. Mm -hmm. I what a what a great word yeah. that that's a, that's all right that, that that's a, a lovely discovery in it of itself. But one of the things that that interested me about that is that as a culture right now we're in the midst mm. of an epidemic, and it's not the, an epidemic of COVID because you can. Get, get a vaccine for that. Or if you get it, you'll develop a resistance. The epidemic we're in is lying. And, and it's just happening on a scale that was heretofore unimaginable. Yet the kinds of, I think, the biggest lies we are led to believe have to begin with the lies we tell ourselves. The little lies. Um, and you tell yourself a little lie. That's the... I can believe what that person says. And they say a bunch of believable stuff. Verify, they say, the sky is blue. No, the sea is blue, whatever. And once you bought that lie you told yourself, it makes the entry of other lies very easy. And I think that this book, there's a lot of lies in this book, and most of them are the lies that you and the people in your life tell yourselves. I'd like you to talk about that. And, and on the other hand, we can't give up lying as a culture. I mean, no. <laughs> we, we might as well just go start blowing up all the atomic bombs <laughs> now and save ourselves the, the stress. I think for me, uh, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's so much lies. It's really seeing an incomplete truth. You know, it's it's um, having blinders on. So my field of vision is very narrow, and I'm not open to the the wide breadth of what's around that narrow view. Um, you know, I was talking before about how I 
had my mother pigeonholed as the enemy. And that, that first thing you had me read at the beginning was, you know, I saw her as a spider luring me into her web. And, um, and I also propagated that. You know, I talked about that. And I, I, um, that was my PR about my mother, you know, was what a terrible person she was. And I, I certainly don't feel good about that now. But it was a way I protected myself. And I, I couldn't see the full spectrum of who she was. Um, so in that way, um, I don't know if it's a lie, but it's, it's, a, um, it's a subset of the truth. Um, you know, the thing about, you brought up the thing about fiblets, and that was, that was something I learned in, uh, I, my mom and I went to a support group through the Alzheimer's Association. It was called the Early Stage Memory Loss Support Group. And it saved my life for, you know, a couple of years when I was caring for her. And uh, we would meet on, I think it was on Tuesday afternoons, and everyone talked really slow, and everything was really calm. And um, the people who had memory loss would go into a room with one facilitator, and the caregivers would go into another room with another facilitator, um, and that's where I learned about the idea of fiblets. And, you know, an example of using it was there was a point where um, I realized, I had thought for a long time, but it got to the point where it was really clear my mother could no longer live alone. And so my brother and I arranged for her to move actually into Sunshine Villa to go into assisted living. And she, you know, I brought her there for a visit and she was like, I don't want to be with these old people. You know, I'm not old like them. Um, and she did look really good. <laughs> she always looked at least 10 years younger than she was. So she didn't identify with being old. And um, when, I, when I went to um, the head of the group and talked about it, she just said, you know, you just tell her you're just going for a month. We're just going to do it on a trial basis. Now, that was a lie. Or you could say it was a fiblet. And she just said, it's time doesn't mean anything to her. And it's so cruel to just tell her you're leaving your home forever. So we took that advice. And, and I, I did it with a number of other things where, you know, it's sort of like, let's say someone has Alzheimer's and they're thinking that their husband, who has been dead for 20 years, is about to arrive at the door. You know, you don't just keep saying, you know, your husband died 20 years ago. It's like, oh, let's check the door. You, you, the, the, the advice was to enter their reality. Um, and, and to enter their story as they understood it. Yes, to enter their story as they understand it. You know, and then really, you know, the thing that's so amazingly wonderful about people with dementia and Alzheimer's is that they never stop feeling love. You know, like if, if you love them and touch them, you know, that they love touch and they love music and that there's, um, there's a way that if you can connect on a heart level, you have to really surrender connecting on other levels because there's a point where the conversation just goes in these repetitive loops over and over again. And it's, a, it's you know, it's definitely, um, there's a lot of anticipatory grief when you have someone with dementia who's declining like that and you're, you're losing the person little by little by little um, and, and you're grieving for them before they actually pass. You know, one of the things that struck me about this book I was talking about spectrums earlier, and, and, and 
one spectrum that I think this book explores is what I would call the burden scale, which is how much can we take and what do we, how do we take it when life says, nope, you better change your scale here. There is actually a, a tool called the burden scale, and I, I write about it. I went down, um, there's a caregiver, I think it's called the, I'm not getting the name right, like the Caregiver's Alliance or the Caregiver's, I'm sorry, it, it's in the book, I, I can't look it up right now. But in Santa Cruz, there was a, a place where you could go to get support as a caregiver. And um, I went there when I was like sort of at my complete wit's end for an intake. And they had this thing called the burden scale. And it was asking all these questions. I, I don't remember them, but there were things like, you know, on a scale of, you know, one to 10, that was, it was a different scale. It was like always, never, frequently. Um, do you feel stress when you're around your, the person you're caregiving, you know? And, and there was a whole series of questions. And I ended up, you know, and my answers were like, always, always, always. <laughs> And at the end, I think my scout, my score was like 37 points. And I think like 18 was over the, over the top of the chart. So, you know, I was so stressed and it was, you know, the thing, the other thing I want to say is that I had it really good. You know, my mother um, was a, grew up in the depression. She was very poor as a child. She was a social worker. She never earned a lot of money. My father was a teacher um, and then abandoned the family and financially in every other way. Um, and yet my mother, by the end of her life, had acquired enough money and because she was so incredibly frugal and careful um, that she had enough money to pay for her own care until the end of her life. So I wasn't faced with financially having to pay for her care. Um, I didn't have to take her into my home, which I think would have destroyed me. Um, so I had a lot of privilege in terms of her caregiving. Um, and so, yes, it was a huge burden. And I, I feel like I also had the benefit of um, that other people were doing a lot of the uh, most challenging physical part of her care, uh, which I, I just, with our history and everything else, I just don't know if I was capable of it. I, I, if I'd been forced to, I, I just don't know what would have happened. Um, but, you know, and the burden was exacerbated by, you know, I had teenagers. I mean, just the, the, the crunch of everything in my life, it was such a stressful, difficult time. Yeah. You know, you never turn your phone off. And I, the amount of emergency calls I got were just staggering. Wow. Yeah. You know, this strikes me in many ways as a, a quintessential actual American story in that the way it, life plays out, it, everybody rises up, everybody gets taken down. Uh, you know, we see these scenes early in the book of your mother at parties, you're cooking with her, she's proud of you, has you recite something which makes you mad, but She's also, you know, starring in plays. She's doing all of these wonderful things. And, you know, you're also experiencing terrible things and trying uh, trauma. There's, it's, you know, one big churn. Uh, America is, is not like, you know, we won. It's, 
we're alive. Talk about, you know, just your your experience just as, you know, living this kind of a quintessential American life that seems in many respects completely the opposite of quintessential. I didn't, never would have occurred to me to think of myself that way as living a quintessential life. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I was so influenced by my generation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. I was a flower child. I, I um, joined a cult. I, was, I had a guru. Um, I quit college three times. You know, I had my share of psychedelics. I, um, you know, I just did, I did all the things of my generation um, and, and kind of rejected normal life. And, and yet, it's so funny, I have a cousin who says that Karen and I, who, you know, this lesbian couple raising children, she goes, you two are the most traditional couple I know. <laughs> you know, we have the house, we have the kids, we have the grandchildren, we, you know, et cetera. You know, we have, we host the holidays. We're, we're very um, traditional. So um, I guess I'm somewhat normal. Um, you know, I think this, this kind of epic story of two generations struggling with each other and missing each other and connecting at some points and then missing each other again. It's just so classic. I, th I think a lot about, you know, the generation gap. I think about it a lot with my kids and I think about it a lot with my grandkids and I just think about the world they're growing up in right now. And it's terrifying to think, you know, like I feel like whatever's happening in the world right now, you know, I'm more closer to the end of my life. I've already had my life. Um, and my kids, you know, they're going to have to deal with all the crap that is happening right now and all the messes that our generation and previous generations have created. And then I think of these little children, the little ones, they're being raised in this, like this is their normal. And um, I, I, try, I actually don't think about it very much because I find it so painful um, to think about little children right now when, when this world of divisiveness and toxic relationships and disinformation like this is their norm this is the world they're they're being raised in um the new book by laura davis is the burning light of two stars a mother-daughter story thank you for joining me laura it's been such a pleasure talking to you You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.